Welcome back to the Paris Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Steve Serio. Steve is a wheelchair basketball player for Team USA and he's a four-time Paralympian, having won one bronze and two gold medals, particularly the last two Paralympic Games. So welcome to the podcast, Steve. Uh, Thanks for having me, Liz. I'm excited. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and your impairment and how you got into playing basketball? Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, uh, my name is Steve Sirio. I am the co-captain of the men's wheelchair basketball team for Team USA, having competed in the last four Paralympic Games and, and actually winning gold in the last uh, two Paralympic Games in Rio in 2016 and in Tokyo in 2021. So I was actually born with a benign spinal tumor that went undiagnosed for the first 11 months of my life. During that time, the tumor became infected and inflamed and crushed my spinal cord, resulting in the incomplete paralysis of my lower extremities. So living with a disability, it's, it's all I know, it's all I remember, and I'm what you, what I'm defined as being an incomplete paraplegic, which means that the, the sensory and motor function of my lower body is both are both at different levels, but I'm basically just a spinal cord injury. Yeah, at what level, kind of roughly what level of the spinal cord? So uh, my impairment is around L3, L4, which mm-hmm. obviously it, it could have been a lot worse. I, I could have been a lot higher, um, but fortunately the tumor was caught uh, in, in time and um, I'm able to use some portion of my legs. I have some motor function in my lower extremities. Uh, Feeling actually only affects my feet. So I have full sensation uh, throughout my body except for my feet. So in a way, I like to look at it as I was pretty lucky, uh, all things considered. Mm. And so what classification are you in wheelchair basketball? In wheelchair basketball, I'm classified as a 3.5. Right. Okay. And so that gives you pretty, you, you're pretty mobile in the chair and, and would you put yourself as more of an attacking player than a defensive player? Yeah. So I am one of the more quote unquote able athletes within our sport. Uh, 3.5 is, you know, right under amputees or amputee levels. I would characterize myself as a all around player. So mm-hmm. one of my, the, thing I take the most pride on athletically is the fact that I'm kind of a Swiss army knife. I feel (laughs) like I can do almost anything that the team asks me to do, depending on the opponent or depending on who uh, my other teammates are on the court at that time, which um, Mm -hmm. has definitely helped me have uh, a long career on Team USA. Mm. And so you have full trunk function, correct? Full trunk function. The only, so posteriorly is where my motor function kind of starts to deteriorate a little bit. I have mm-hmm. uh, like limited lower glutes, uh, limited hamstrings, limited um, AB ductors. I have full AD ductors. So like the, the middle portion of my body is pretty much fully intact, uh, but laterally it's a little bit iffy, um, but that's exactly where my incomplete paralysis kind of comes into effect it's uh right at that level of my body right okay great and so how did you get into wheelchair basketball 
Yeah, growing up, uh, I was living in an able-bodied world. I played able-bodied sports. I went to a quote-unquote normal public school system. I had able-bodied mm -hmm. friends, and basically my world was about fitting into the world of sports that basically wasn't built for me. I was a, a yeah. really big baseball player growing up, and uh, basically me and my friends would tailor the rules so that I could play with them. And it wasn't until mm -hmm. I was about 13 or 14 years old where for safety and liability reasons that uh, the school board that I was attending basically told me that I couldn't compete. I couldn't play with my friends anymore. And this was wow. the first time, it was the first time in my life that I, f like, I felt like I had a disability. Here are these mm. people that don't know anything about me and my abilities basically telling me that I can't play sports and that I can't just go out and play with my friends. And uh, to be honest, I wasn't born to sit on the sidelines. I ne needed to find mm -hmm. an athletic outlet for myself. And it was through a physical therapist I was seeing at the time that introduced me to a kid's wheelchair basketball team that trained and played about 10 minutes away from where I grew up. And I never knew about it. Um, this was, you know, oh, before wow. the, this was before the age of social media and maybe that's showing my age a bit, but it was, you know, a lot of word of mouth and it just never reached me at that time. But I remember going down and not having any expectations about what it's like to play basketball, sitting in a wheelchair. I didn't know mm -hmm. if the hoops were the same size, if people shot threes, like how do you dribble playing in a wheelchair? I didn't know, mm -hmm. I didn't have any expectations, but I remember sitting down and sitting in a wheelchair basketball chair for the very first time and just feeling free from my disability. Like this was something mm -hmm. I was meant to do. I was meant to be a part of it. And I tell people uh, since I was 15 years old, I haven't left the gym since. Mm. Wow, you must only be, be about 25 now. <laughs> I, I love <laughs> your positivity. <laughs> uh, but nope, that, that, that's not entirely right. <laughs> and so then, you know, how did you move into getting into the national team? Like what was the wheelchair basketball scene like at that point in time in the US? At that point in time, uh, the wheelchair basketball community is basically run by the National Wheelchair Basketball Association, which is a big nonprofit here in the US. There's uh, a number of kids teams all throughout the country, similar to how we have mm -hmm. the AAU in, in basketball and in body basketball. But basically there's a, you know, one or two kids teams in each state and you play for your closest local team. And I played two years in juniors, had some success in juniors, uh, then started to get it recruited by various university programs. And one of the best things about wheelchair basketball here in the States is that there are a number of wheelchair basketball teams affiliated with universities. So it was a no brainer that I was going to play basketball at the university level, but it was just a matter mm -hmm. of which program gave me and my family the most support. I uh, ultimately chose the University of Illinois uh, where I mm -hmm. got a degree in exercise science. And it was around my freshman or, or sophomore year at college where I thought that being a part of Team USA was a real possibility. And this was something that I wanted to do full time. I wanted to be a high performance athlete and I wanted to push myself at the highest levels of our sport. Yeah. And it's it's taken you a long way. I mean, there's a professional playing group in Europe, like most of the countries in Europe, Italy, Germany, Spain, who 
there's a, a really big competition and lots of opportunities for wheelchair basketballers to play over there internationally and, and effectively play full-time, correct? Yeah, so once I graduated from the University of Illinois, I like did what, exactly what you said. I went to play for a professional club team out in Germany, just outside of Frankfurt. And it was an experience that I was only supposed to go over there for one season and ended up staying mm -hmm. for six years. I, mm -hmm. I had a wonderful experience with my club team, but it was a very different relationship to the game than I had originally experienced. You know, this is right. now my job and my pay, my livelihood is based upon my performance on the court, which was mm -hmm. uh, a very different experience than, than what we have here recreationally here in the US. But ultimately it did help prepare me for the challenges that I would face on Team USA in the years to come. Hmm. Yeah, it's one of the few Paralympic sports where there are those international opportunities. It's, I don't degree of competition available, is there? I know that there's any other Paralympic sport that has quite... No, the I think it's, wheelchair basketball is probably the most prolific adaptive sport that, that there is. Uh, I can pretty confidently say that here in the US, it's the sport where almost everybody that is interested in adaptive sports plays at some point in his or her life. With a wheelchair basketball, wheelchairs are very versatile. So when you go to a wheelchair distributor and you say that you want a sports wheelchair, they usually give you a basketball chair because you can play on softball, yep. you can play basketball, you can play tennis. Um, it's just a pretty ubiquitous sport. And it's one of the only adaptive sports that we have for kids here in this country where you can play with your friends. So yep. um, I like to tell people it's one of the more inclusive adaptive sports that there are because I can put an able-bodied friend of mine into a wheelchair, In a wheelchair. and we yep. can play on the same level playing field, which is not yep. really the case with other adaptive sports. So it's uh, definitely, in my opinion, one of the more prolific adaptive sports that we have. Mm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more specifically about you and your your day-to-day -day life leading say leading into Tokyo I know you're having a little bit of a break now uh, so your training program is a little bit different now so let's go back 12 months for example what would a typical training week have looked like for you well there's a very big difference between pre-covid and during covid which <laughs> you want me to speak towards a more like normal maybe pre-covid <laughs> okay cool before the world yeah. changed forever yeah yeah. So yeah. basically my routine, my training routine consisted of um, waking up and having coffee, no ifs, ands, or buts about the way I start my day. <laughs> Steve doesn't function unless he's got coffee in his system. I am unfortunately completely addicted. So that is, uh, yeah, no, no, <clears throat> no jokes or anything about that in the morning. And then I'll wake up and I'll do my mental skills training, whether that's visualization or some form of meditation, morally focused on wellness currently, but um, whatever form of meditation that I need to do. And then I will, uh, depending on the workout that I have scheduled, I'll either consume a little meal before my workout and then go work out, or sometimes I'll do fasted workouts. And I know that um, me and you have had conversations about that in the past. I'm sure that we will get into that type of uh, that that type of workout um, that is probably not the best for me, but the very first thing I do is uh, go do my first training session of the day. 
Um, and that can vary depending on what I'm working on that week or that month or where I am in the training cycle. But that's pretty much how I start almost every day. A typical uh, week of training basically looks like I, I exercise or I train four to six times per week, depending on my goals for that week. And it could be one or two training, you know, training sessions, depending on whether I'm shooting or on the court one session and then doing a cardio or a lifting session versus the other. Um, but that's what a typical training week looks like for me. Mm-hmm. And how often would the team get together for like the national team? How often would they get together? So here in the U.S., we have a very unique way that we do training sessions for Team USA. Basically, every athlete is expected to go back to his or her local club teams, whether that's a professional team in Europe or a recreation team here in the U.S. And we have our Team USA workouts that we get virtually from our strength and conditioning coach. Mm-hmm. We're expecting to complete those workouts, but we don't get together and train very much during the actual season. Mm-hmm. What we do is we fly to Colorado, Colorado Springs uh, maybe three or four months before the competitions. And we get together once every 10 days uh, the, during those three months before the competition, just because people have lives and families and jobs that they need to take care of. Uh, And here in the US, it's being a Team USA athlete is not our full time occupation. So when we do get together during those summer months before our competition, we're together for three or four days at a time, usually somewhere between 10 days and two weeks uh, between sessions. So it's a lot. It's a lot of traveling and it's a lot of work during those summer months, but it's obviously all worth it. And, you know, the sacrifice is real for being a Team USA athlete, but that's how we do things here. Yeah. Okay. And those those camps, when you do actually get together, they're pretty intense, aren't they? They're, you're usually on the court at least twice during the day and, and with some strength and conditioning sort of in between those, those times as well, correct? Yeah, typical training camp will consist of two on-court sessions that last three hours around each. Um, obviously, we're not always you know, exercising or playing during those full three hours. We're game planning, doing various drills, stuff like that. But then we'll also add a strength and conditioning portion on top of that, whether that's on-court with various plyometric drills uh, or an, an in-the-weight-room lifting session. Uh, not every day, but maybe half the time that we're there, we'll throw in that extra lifting or cardio session. Mm-hmm. Cool. And so... If you're back at home, uh, what would your typical day-to-day diet look like to support that training? Yeah, so a typical day-to-day diet for me consists of uh, obviously one cup of coffee right when I wake up (laughs) and then breakfast at some point before or after my workout, whether that's, you know, usually I, I need to eat a little bit before, whether that's just a piece of fruit, but then afterwards... My breakfast is pretty consistent. I have uh, two eggs and some egg whites along with a piece of grain, whether that's like a piece of bread or half of a bagel or something like that, alongside with some fruit. And my the fruit that I love are like clementines and pineapple. So that's a typical mm-hmm. uh, breakfast for me. Usually, depending on my, my workout schedule or, or whether that's a hard day or an easy day, I will throw in a protein shake for my next meal. Mm -hmm. 
my protein shake of choice is like this spinach banana smoothie that consists of spinach, bananas, almond milk, chia seeds, blueberries, and some sort of whey protein to just kind of uh, add an, another level of, of protein intake for me. A couple hours after that, I will have a very light lunch. And that's the most variable portion of my day. That's the, that's the one that changes the most because if I'm out and about, I'll, you know, eat out. Or um, if I'm here, it's, it's just, it's hard to say like one piece of thing that I, that I eat for that, that lunch meal. And then for that dinner portion, um, which occurs, you know, anywhere from seven to nine at night, that will be some sort of lean protein and it's chicken, salmon, something really lean and boring, to be honest, mixed with (laughs) some type of like a sweet potato is kind of my go-to, something that's really easily meal prepped Mm -hmm. along with some, some vegetables. That's where um, I'll get my most like vegetable portion of my, of my diet. And so that's like a typical, a typical day in the life for me, uh, nutrition wise. You forgot your flat white. Oh, oh, that's right. So in the middle of the day, as I'm addicted to coffee, I have, cons- I basically consume another cup of coffee in the in the middle of the afternoon to give me that next jolt. Sometimes it is a flat white, although recently it hasn't been flat whites because I'm trying not to eat too much dairy. Um, so recently it's just been hardcore espressos. But um, if I want to splurge a little bit on life, that's when my flat white will come in for sure. Uh-huh. Okay. And so let's go back to what you mentioned earlier that sometimes you do, or a lot of the time you do your morning session fasted and, and we had that conversation. Give us your reasons around that and what you've experienced in terms of playing around with eating before or not eating before that training session. Yeah. Eating before that first training session is something I've definitely experimented with in college when, you know, we as athletes, you know, at least in wheelchair basketball, start to become high performance athletes, we used to train at six in the morning. So the idea of me getting up, mm. you know, an hour or 45 minutes before training just to have a meal in college was just not an option for me. You know, every every minute of sleep is, <laughs> is uh, really important to me, especially at that time in my life. So I basically went my entire collegiate career by not eating before that first training session. And to be honest, I really liked it initially Mm -hmm. because it just was like a jolt to my system. I never felt like I faded during, during workouts. I never felt like I was hungry initially right after. And it was just kind of the way I I did things. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I became a little bit older, my body wasn't able to recover quite as, as fast as it used to back in those collegiate days where I realized, especially for a Team USA training camp, that first session where I needed to consume some calories to get me through that those three hour long training sessions. So as my body and my growth kind of have, have evolved over my career, I have definitely changed my nutrition habits. But initially that first fasted workout session was what I kind of live by. Mm-hmm. And you know, we had that conversation around your alertness levels and and your energy levels and that being fasted for moderate level intensity um, not too skill demanding session is probably okay if you've fueled well the day before but if it was a pretty high intensity and a lot of demand on your 
um, your attention and your focus and things like that that are probably you needed to have something. Do you find that just having that piece of fruit does that job for you? Like, you know, we're not talking about having a big pre-training amount of food. It's just having something. How much do you think is enough? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's not really something that I tend to stick to 100% of the time. Like sometimes it could be a piece of fruit. Sometimes it could be a piece of toast with peanut butter. Honestly, the way that I look at it now is I look at my nutrition habits in a more like whole process, you know, kind of like a more, I don't look at each individual meal. I look at it in terms of like my entire week. So a lot of times when I was training at training camps in my early years, I would continue to do those fasted cardio sessions and it would get me, I would be able to get through the camp for four or five days, but then I would absolutely crash Mm. at the end of the week or at the end of the training session, at the end of the training camp. And basically what I learned that if even by consuming just a little bit of food before those training sessions, it allowed me to just be ha- live a more sustainable training week yeah. instead of having really hard workouts in the beginning being able to get through those workouts totally fine but then crashing on day six and seven yeah and having to like my body craving calories and having you know really really bad cheat days instead mm. of having a more sustainable nutritional plan yeah so it's honestly it's not that hasn't only helped me in terms of that training session, eating beforehand, but it's just allowed me to to have a more healthy training uh, or ha- have a more healthy nutrition lifestyle, yeah. I guess is what I would say. Yeah, yeah, cool. And so what do you think are some of your biggest nutrition challenges that you face? Where do you struggle the most in terms of maintaining that consistency of, of how you're feeling and, and your energy levels throughout an entire sort of section of time yeah so the thing i i struggle with the most is is basically twofold so the first one is variety Mm -hmm. and i am i'm a basketball player so we're creatures of habit Mm -hmm. whether we do that in our mental training aspect but our sport is basically based on repetition it's something that you kind of have to love if you want to be a basketball player Mm -hmm. and my nutrition is very similar to that i can go days weeks at a time with kind of eating a very similar thing each meal because I know that that works for me. On the other hand, you don't really get a lot of variety. So the first part that is uh, definitely could use a little bit of work is just a variety of foods that I eat. And I'm not even saying that from like a hormonal or, or blood level balance sort of thing in your nutrition. It's just like for sake of sanity, I can't (laughs) eat another piece of salmon at night. You know what I mean? So the variety where you get your protein sources, where you get your carb, your your good carb sources, that could be a, a little bit of a weakness for me personally because I just kind of get to what I I know and what my body reacts well, and I can just do that at a time. the The other aspect of it is again because I'm a cre- creature of habit, I don't do a good job of changing my nutrition based off of the training day that I was having. Mm. So my meals, when I'm training hard, it's really what I kind of talked about. It's it's breakfast, a protein shake, it's some type of lunch, and then some type of dinner. It's it's three and a half meals, basically, for me. Yep. But there were times, especially later in my career, where um, my body wouldn't recover, and it would be really be craving 
calories and it would tell me by my fatigue levels, mm -hmm. but I just wouldn't adapt to the level of training that I was going through. Um, if you add a really hard lifting session, you know, in the middle of the week, I wouldn't do a good job of compensating that with the appropriate amount of calories for that specific day. And again, I would start to fade toward the later of the week, later in the week. Mm -hmm. So while being a creature of habit is uh, a key part of being a high performance athlete, in my opinion, for all sports, you have to be really disciplined yeah. and repetitive in some aspects, the variety and the flexibility in terms of when or how many calories I'm consuming uh, are definitely weaknesses in my in my nutrition plan. And you travel a lot for work in terms of um, you have a lot of commitments that you're fulfilling with some of the things that you do outside of basketball. How has that impacted like your ability to kind of sustain you know, your, your food supply at home when you're traveling a lot? Yeah, traveling is uh, definitely an X factor and it definitely does not lead well to proper nutrition in my opinion. Um, I feel like no matter where I'm traveling to, I could always find a court or a gym where I could get my, my workouts in. But just the the flexibility in terms of my meals when I'm on the road is is definitely challenging. You just don't you're just not as locked in as you are when you can prep your own meals, uh, prep your snacks, prep your protein shakes, stuff like that. Yeah. So it's definitely a challenge. Um to be honest, when I'm traveling, I tend to give myself a level of flexibility that I wouldn't give myself when I'm at home. Mm -hmm. Just because uh, when I'm traveling, it's it's really for another aspect of life. It's for my work. And, you know, I do the best I can, but I don't get too hard on myself. Yep. So when I uh, am traveling, if it's not to a Teen USA camp, I will definitely splurge at night. And it's um, something that has allowed me to be sustainable is a certain level of flexibility, but it's definitely not as locked in as when I am, when I'm at home. And what would a splurge look like for Steve Serio? So a splurge, so I'm not a big fast food guy mm -hmm. and it's basically a big splurge for me is when I'm out with friends or colleagues uh, out to a restaurant, I'll allow myself to have a drink at dinner mm -hmm. or I'll allow myself to really not focus on this meal based off of what I've consumed that day. You know, mm -hmm. if I want a burger or if I want, you know, a pizza or something like that, I'll allow myself to kind of do those things as long as I am aware that when I get home, it's time to lock in yeah. and, you know, not necessarily let those bad days kind of compound on each other. Yeah. The one thing that when I'm on, when I'm traveling and I, we, travel all across the country so long flights from new york city uh is my is my hydration mm -hmm. and my hydration ties back to my disability as being an incomplete paraplegic you know consuming enough water is not ideal because mm -hmm. of the bathroom situation especially when i'm traveling so that's one thing that's variable for every every athlete I can tell you that I don't consume enough water when I'm traveling just because of I don't want accidents to happen on the plane. Yeah. But again, when I'm at home, uh, I really am locked into even that aspect of things. Uh, when I'm traveling, you know, just other factors are need to be taken into account and I'll yeah. let that slip a little bit. But again, the level of flexibility is important. Yeah, yeah. And so tell us a little bit about what some of that travel 
involves now, now that you're taking a little bit of a, a break? Yeah, over the last year since since Tokyo happened, I've learned that you can accomplish a lot in one day when you're not focused around training and nutrition and making sure that you're getting your appropriate amounts of caffeine every single day. But what I am doing now is I'm working with a number of different sponsors across the U.S., uh, like Toyota or, or Nike. Uh, I work with a number of different nonprofits promoting the impact adaptive sports has had on me and basically opening up opportunities for kids and people with disabilities to find their niche, to find their sport where, you know, wheelchair basketball has given me everything that I have. And I want to create an oppor- opportunities like that for all people with disabilities. I've told people now that the impact that I can have off the court is just infinitely more important to me than the impact that I can have on it. And while I I'm not officially retired. I am really enjoying this aspect of my life. And, you know, we'll see if I get back on the court at a high performance level. But right now, this is what's important to me. Yeah, cool. So I guess give us a bit of scope as to how an an upcoming athlete, someone who's new to their disability or new to wheelchair basketball, how do they get involved in it? Yeah, so this is uh, different in in most countries uh, around the world. Here in the in the U.S., our nonprofit is called the National Wheelchair Basketball Association. Honestly, uh, what I tell people is if you just Google wheelchair basketball nearby or near you, odds are that there will be a team that pops up. And I would encourage anybody to go down to their to their local team. I'm sure that they will have sports wheelchairs for you to try out. But honestly, it's just a matter of doing a quick Google search and finding something that you're passionate about. I was actually really fortunate because, again, when I was coming up, this was before the internet, and I just was just so happening to work with a physical therapist that knew about this team. But now with uh, mm-hmm. social media, with highlighting the platforms that a lot of these sponsors and nonprofits have, I haven't run into someone that doesn't know about wheelchair basketball or doesn't know about adaptive sports. It's just a matter of connecting them to the right environment. Mm-hmm. So um, I mm-hmm. honestly, I would encourage everyone to, you know, find their adaptive sport of, of choosing. You can always reach out to me personally. I have a number of contacts around the world and I can, you know, connect you with the, uh, you know, whatever sport that, that you want to be associated with. But Social media is a powerful thing, and a lot of us in the adaptive sports world is just trying to use it uh, for good. Yeah, awesome. Well, that's very generous of you, Steve. Do you have any recommendations for practitioners? So you said that you use um, mental skills. So obviously you've worked with a a sports psychologist. Uh, You've had sports medicine practitioners that you've worked with, obviously sports nutrition. Any recommendations for those sort of practitioners when working with Paralympic athletes? Yeah, I, a number. Uh, and honestly, I'm sure that you could speak to this better than I can being in our world for so long and being so knowledgeable. The the first thing that I would say is uh, be patient. I know that you have experienced mm-hmm. this with, with, you know, our wheelchair <laughs> basketball team. There are Paralympic athletes that do things a certain way and that has worked for them for so long and they could be very resistant mm-hmm. to change. But I always tell practitioners that they're the athletes are the ones that know their bodies. They they know themselves really well, and it's going to be a very 
gradual change when you implement something new into our lifestyle. You know, as someone mm -hmm. with a disability, we have been adapting the world around us our entire life. And we've figured out yep. very personally how to navigate through a world that was not built for us. So when new things or new ideas get introduced to us, it could be a very resistant uh, feeling that we have. And then there's some other athletes that want as much information as humanly possible and that they don't ever focus on a routine or a system that works for them because they're just constantly always trying to change things. I would say that the second mm. level, uh, the second thing that I would advise practitioners is to just be as flexible as possible with people because what works for me won't work for my teammate or won't won't work for other athletes. Yeah. Um, but those are the two that I that I always kind of tell people is be flexible, but also be patient with us. Everybody's disability is different. We react differently to the world. We react differently to various nutrition. You know, I can tell you, you know, that funny story of when you recommended, what was that like black cherry juice shot? <laughs> tart, tart, tart cherry juice, juice for yep. us. I can tell you that even before Tokyo, there are some athletes that still live by it and love it. I can tell you I had mm -hmm. one and uh, that was just not something that was going to be in my nutrition plan uh, because my body <laughs> did not react well to that to that particular thing so you know uh it's all about trial and error but it's all about you know flexibility and adaptability for us as paralympians yeah yeah absolutely yeah steve you've you've got so many i guess so many stories and and so much experience it i could talk to you for hours um, but i'm acutely aware that you have a very busy lifestyle and and even outside of basketball you've got plenty on so i'm going to finish off with my last question which is what is your favorite food oh my gosh i live in new york city what is my favorite food it's like <laughs> an impossible question to answer um so i mean i am talking to a nutritionist so how do i want to answer this i can tell uh, you no, i can no, tell you this no, no, it's got to be a my favorite piece of food is a slice of new york city pizza so let's just let's just start uh -huh. there it is um it is okay. my home it's where i'm from it's embedded into my soul that is uh by far you do have italian heritage yes that that is who i am as a human being so bread mm -hmm. melted cheese and marinara sauce is pretty much all you need in life but i can tell you that uh in terms of like what i eat normally my my single favorite nutrition thing that I do when I'm training is that protein smoothie. That's yeah. just something that I kind of live by and it, it, it varies too. It's very flexible, but it's the one thing that has got me through almost two decades of training is making sure that I have uh, that protein smoothie in some form or fashion. So uh, I guess that's, that's, that would be my politically correct answer, but man, there's just nothing better than a good, <laughs> a good slice of New York city pizza. So. <laughs> Oh, well, I look forward to the opportunity of coming back to New York sometime and enjoying a slice of New York pizza with you and perhaps a flat white. Oh, now you're speaking my language. That's that's pretty much all <laughs> I want in every meal. So that, that would be lovely. <laughs> 
Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And yeah, keep up the great work with all of the advocacy and connecting that you're doing out there in the world of adaptive sports, specifically wheelchair basketball. Um, We'll look forward to seeing what the next couple of years has for you and whether that includes Paris or not. I know whatever the case will be, it will be a successful one. Oh, thanks, Liz, and thanks for having me. I found it really interesting that Steve was able to reflect on his lack of ability to be flexible with his eating on a day-to-day basis to match his training and that he felt that that restricted his ability to recover effectively, particularly in the last periods of his training and, and competition life. I think that highlights the fact that it's really important to truly understand how your nutrition interplays with your training and that it's not that every day should be the same because your training's not the same every day. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please leave a message for us if you have any feedback or any recommendations on people you'd like to hear from. And I hope you join us next time when we talk to Siobhan Crochet who is a sports dietitian with the Australian wheelchair rugby team. 